This is The Feed. From Markham. From Richmond Hill. From Vaughn. From Aurora. East Gwillimbury. Whitchurch, Stouffville. From everywhere you are. This is The Feed, York Region's only news magazine dedicated to the issues, events, and stories that matter to all of us who live and work here. Welcome to The Feed. I'm Ann Romer. On the show, will we ever see the end of COVID-19? Moderna co-founder Derek Rossi with his projections. A York Region support group for men and their families and the 2021 Access Expo at Variety Village. But first, it's almost here. Tina Cortez with the latest from the campaign trail. The federal election is just over a week away to tackle the key issues. Is York University Associate Professor of Politics, Dennis Pilon. Professor Pilon, good to have you with us. Thanks for having me. All right, so the English debates happened earlier this week. Mail-in ballots are already available. Advanced polls opened on Friday. What are your thoughts on where the campaign is right now? I feel like the campaign is really just taking off. Uh, It got called early in the summer, uh, and then it seemed like we were in this long period of waiting, waiting for everything to start. And then right at the beginning of September, it's almost like the campaign has finally begun. And are the major parties, their gains or losses considered significant at this point? Because, you know, when that campaign was first launched, the Liberals started out ahead in the polls. But since then, most of the country is battling a fourth wave. There have been devastating wildfires in BC and of course the situation in Afghanistan. At this point, does it look like Aaron O'Toole and the Conservatives are leading in the polls and will they take it to election day? It looks to me like everything is very close. Uh, We haven't seen a great deal of change. You know, people have talked about how the Liberals were ahead, now the Conservatives are ahead. But both parties have been lurking in the 30 to 35 percent popular vote range, neither of which is enough to give uh, them a majority government. And, of course, it's hard to say how it will play out in terms of who will get what seats. It's possible the Liberals will get fewer votes but more seats just because of the way their votes are concentrated. So, no, I, I don't see a lot of impact of these different issues in the campaign on the way people say they're going to vote. Um, So, no, I'm, I'm not seeing the same kind of movement that I think the pollsters are trying to help us to see. And what about in terms of, you know, there have always been protests on the campaign trail, but have you seen the kind of vitriol that we're seeing right now? I think we are seeing something new and different. I think it is a culmination of various factors. Uh, obviously, the, the pandemic, uh, the various shutdowns due to COVID has mobilized a group of people who otherwise aren't typical politicos, aren't the kind to come out to these sorts of things. But damn it, they are unhappy about being inconvenienced by all of these restrictions. And then the election has just given them a new platform. They were already lurking out there. And then the the election has sort of allowed them to appear before the public in larger numbers than before. In terms of the NDP's Jagmeet Singh, what do you think of his performance so far? It appears to me that Singh is speaking to his base very effectively. Uh, it doesn't appear that the polling is suggesting that he's headed for a breakout. It's hard to say as we, as we move into the final days of the campaign. But he really needs to get back into Quebec. He needs to show Quebecers that the NDP is the kind of party for them. And so far, it's not looking like that's happening. So I think in the end, it could be that you know, Singh will once again be the kind of second, third prize winner. Everyone will say, nice job. But you know, it won't be that he's had this amazing breakthrough like back in 2011. And what about the other parties? Well, the, 
there's a number of interesting things going on with the different parties. Each one has got some unique challenges. The liberals, of course, are battling hubris. You know, the idea that they called an election that nobody needed for no good reason. And I have yet to hear the prime minister or any of his pundits give us any good reasons to defend his decision. So he's got to wear that. The conservatives are struggling with a leader who appears to be fighting with his own base, trying to kind of hold them at bay while he reaches out to the center of the political spectrum. And it's not clear if he's going to succeed because, of course, people say, well, what's going on there? Um, you know, is, is this authentic? Is this guy just going to default to his base once he gets in power? Or is he truly a more centrist conservative leader? And then the Greens, of course, are, are, are battling the battles they had back earlier in the summer uh, in terms of their internal disagreements. And the question is, did that hurt the Greens? Did it hurt enemy Paul's leadership? Can she somehow get the party back on track? The polling's a bit lower than we might expect, but I suspect that come election day, we might see some of those Green voters come back. And what about in terms of the bloc? Well, the bloc, of course, is, is a Quebec story. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and it's so hard to predict the bloc because we've seen them go up and down uh, there's a, there's a contingent of Quebec voters who are Quebec first, and so they're going to vote for a party that is championing Quebec first and foremost. And, uh, and I think the bloc so far haven't seen any kind of key stumbles. Uh, they appear to be getting the press. I think what's much more interesting is the People's Party. Um, are they going to be able to capitalize on some of the you know, anti-COVID, anti-lockdown ideas uh, that some of their supporters have been championing? Um, hard to say. I'm not sure that some of those angry people People at the buses um, condemning Trudeau are necessarily reliable voters. And the challenge for the People's Party is will they get enough support in any one place? You know, their, their national figures are suggesting they've got 4 or 5% of the popular vote, which is pretty significant. But if it doesn't land in any particular place, then they may not win a single seat. Okay, our last final questions here then. What do you think about voter turnout on Election Day on September 20th? I think that um, in, in all other things being considered, this election has kind of been a flop. Um, it, it, it's hard for anyone to get a sense of what the defining issue is. And that, of course, usually depresses voter turnout. On the other hand, to the extent that voters see an option rising that they absolutely dislike, which is the case with the conservatives, the conservatives are very polarizing amongst the electorate, then that can boost uh, turnout for those who want to try to stop a result they don't like. So I think to the extent the conservatives are in first place and appear to be moving up, that could drive up turnout, particularly amongst those who, who don't want them. If it appears that the conservatives are flamed out by Election Day, that could depress turnout as people think, eh, we're all right. There's no risk here. All right. I'm going to put you on the spot. Do you want to make a call? I don't do election predictions <laughs> because the voters are, you know, I, I, my view is it's the right of the voters to decide the election. And I really resent pollsters and others who come in and tell people, hey, forget about it. This thing's done. It isn't done until the ballots are in the box and they're counted on election day. Well, for anyone who thought that this election was in the bag, it certainly is not. Go to 1059theregion.com before Election Day for a list of York Region ridings and the candidates. After the break, the co-founder of Moderna, Derek Rossi. Do you have a story idea for the feed? Call us at 416-335-1059 or email info at 1059theregion.com. Ann Romer and more of the feed coming up. This is 1059 The Region.
Welcome back. Derek Rossi is a superstar among scientists. His passion for molecular biology was ignited at Dr. Norman Bethune High School in Scarborough, and he never looked back. He earned a master's degree in molecular genetics, followed by a PhD from the University of Helsinki, and held a postdoctoral researcher position at Stanford. He became associate professor at the Stem Cell and Regenerative Biology Department at Harvard Medical School and University, a principal faculty member of the Harvard Stem Cell Institute, an investigator at the Immune Disease Institute, and was part of the program in cellular and molecular medicine at Children's Hospital Boston. And then came what the rest of the world saw as the biggie. Derek Rossi co-founded Moderna in 2010, a pharmaceutical and biotech company that focuses on the development of mRNA technology. Fast forward to the start of the pandemic, March 2020, Moderna, alongside Pfizer, becomes a major player in the fight against COVID-19. It's now September 2021. The Moderna vaccine is approved for use in over 68 countries, including Canada and the U.S., with an expanding range in age eligibility. The company is valued at $170 billion. But the true worth of Moderna is found in how many lives it may have saved. Welcome to the feed, Derek Rossi. So good to have you with us. Oh, nice to be here. And appreciate it. Derek, at this point, Moderna is uh, applying uh, for the permission from federal agencies, health agencies, to have a booster shot available to the public. Why are you looking at this at this particular stage of the pandemic? Well, um, so one thing I want to clarify is that I founded the company in 2010. I'm, I'm no longer with the company. So uh, I stepped off the board in the scientific advisory board in 2014. So it's been a number of years, but obviously I follow it very closely and I know the science. Uh, so just, just to, to make sure that everybody knows that. Um, well, actually, so with regards to uh, boosters, um, I've uh, been reading a lot about this, and uh, actually many, uh, you know, pro-vaccinologists uh, would consider it actually just a three-dose regimen for the vaccine. So thus far, it's been two doses, but a third dose seems to be in preliminary data that's coming in, really elevating the immune readiness to levels much higher than we're even seeing at the second dose, hence the, you know, a three-dose regimen. If it just sort of ele elevated it back to levels at the, that were attained after the second dose, you would consider that a booster. There's no question that our immune system does wane with time, and uh, we're, we're really seeing that. Um, you know, six months post-vaccination, though you still have your immune system is still, you know, attuned to the fact that it has seen the spike protein of this virus before, uh, level of, levels of circulating antibodies that have waned uh, such that, um, you know, the risk of, of getting infected is, is uh, raised. On the other hand, people that have been vaccinated at least twice, uh, generally speaking, even with Delta, fare better uh, with infection. You know, hospitalization is way down and death is way down compared to the unvaccinated. But, uh, you know, emerging evidence really suggests that a, a third uh, dose, call it a booster, if you will, will, uh, you know, uh, ra uh, ra uh, raise the immune readiness to a level that would, is really needed for 
know, Delta and other uh, variants as they emerge to keep people out of the hospital and keep people from dying. And we, the public, are watching very closely as Delta is sweeping through North America and really around the world. And now we have a new, well, a couple of new, uh, C12 and also the Mu variant. Is a booster shot effective in dealing with these variants that are with us and those still to come? Well, it's a great question. And so far, um, the answer is yes. Uh, you know, Moderna and all of essentially the vaccine companies quickly uh, test when new, new variants arise. They test whether or not, you know, the uh, Gen 1 vaccine, call it that, is uh, uh, sufficiently able to neutralize uh, infection in, in cells uh, in a dish. It's a good assay. Uh, some variants prove to be uh, more um, effective at still vaccinating. So while the while the antibodies generated from Gen 1 are good, they're not quite as good. Uh, but, you know, new variants means that, you know, an evolutionary process is taking place, which means that things are changing. And at some point, we can expect that Gen 1 vaccines will just you know, and Gen 1 virus will look so different from, you know, a variant that emerges that the, that the uh, you know, Gen 1 vaccine just won't be effective or as effective or effective at all. The good news there is that this is probably the most studied ment- medical intervention in all of human history, uh, and uh, we're on it really fast and really early, and these technologies are such that uh, you can turn on the dime with them and generate, you know, Gen 2, Gen 3, Gen 4 vaccines. In fact, you know, already multiple generations of vaccines are already in clinical uh, development. So I think that, you know, when, when, you know, Gen 1 or 2 vaccines just really don't, aren't effective anymore, you'll see you know, the next ones come along very quickly. Uh, and there will come a time that we don't need to run, you know, phase one, two, and three, which takes a long time to get through, even though, to be honest, when, you know, the, the pandemic first hit, phase one, two, and three happened within a year. That's remarkable, a remar- remarkable uh, time frame. That's because, you know, rather than uh, doing the trial sequentially, they were uh, staggered on top of one another just you know, the, the uh, severity of the pandemic necessitated that. But I think as we become more and more um, comfortable, the FDA um, becomes more and more comfortable with the safety profiles of these technologies and these vaccines. Uh, and of course, the, you know, the, you know if, if, a, if a variant is out there and it's really infectious and it's really lethal, you'll see, you know, these uh, next-gen vaccines um, really uh, moved along quickly. So I, I think they're, you know, the good, news, good and bad news, the virus will evolve and it will, you know, we're, we're seeing it, you know, with all these variants. So that's what evolution does. It selects for, you know, an adve- you know, a, a selective advantage for the, the, uh, the virus to keep propagating itself. But the technologies are, are pretty, uh, pretty quick to uh, be able to respond and work you know, basically the whole scientific world is on this. So uh, comfort can be drawn from that. Professional, personal, maybe even political opinion. What do you say to anti-vaxxers out there? 
Well, um, vaccination is uh, probably one of the most successful medical interventions we've ever had in all of human history. It spans back hundreds of years. Um, uh, it works. It's safe. It's effective. Yes, never say never in biology. There are always rare adverse side effects in any medical intervention that you take. But um, when you look at the numbers, uh, and it's really being demonstrated right now, those that are filling up the hospitals right now and those that are dying are the unvaccinated. The people that are vaccinated are not going into the hospital. They're not going on the ventilators, and they're not dying. I mean, that, that it's as simple as that, and that's just there's no political spin to that. That's just the data. Um, I would also, and I remind everybody, that vaccination really is, is uh, you know, it, it's actually asking your body to do what it normally does on a, a normal basis. Our body's immune systems are constantly surveilling what comes into our bodies um, looking for threat of pathogen. And all a vaccine does, really all it does is, you know, puts a little element of something that might come into you, gives the immune system that little, hmm, this may come around again. If it comes around again, let's respond really quickly to it, really quickly and effectively. Um, and that, that is what vaccination does. It does it's very transient. Uh, you know, the agent that's put into the body, be it an mRNA, or some of the other technologies, peptide or an adenovirus, they're very short-lived, they're transient, they don't last. What lasts is your body's immune reaction to it, and that is exactly what you want. And I remind everybody, that is what your immune systems do, on, they're doing right now. So, Derek Rossi, I have this question for you. You look at the human body, you look at people through a different lens. When you do look at a person, what do you see? <laughs> well, <laughs> that's good. I, I mean, I, it's true. I'm a biologist, so I think of, you know, everything in terms of biology when it comes to issues of human health and, and thinking about interventions. And it, it's, you know, it's what I do for a profession, and I just can't help it because I'm programmed to think that way. I think about, you know, viruses and, um, you know, uh, uh, pathogens. You know, I, I recall, for example, uh, sitting uh, around as a teenager in, you know, basements in uh, Scarborough, Ontario, growing up, you know, having that teenager conversation that you do, which is, hey, what's going to be the end of civilization? And, you know, some kids throw out, you know, nuclear warfare. That's pretty good guess. Others throughout, which I always liked, you know, that big rock coming from space because it's been pretty effective at uh, causing mass extinctions in the past. But I always uh, suggested pathogen, that, you know, a pathogen would hit us that would be really hard to uh, hard for us to handle and, and wipe us out. Uh, so I do, I do think of biology in that regard. When I look at people and I interact with people, though, I'm just like everybody else. You, you know, you interact with somebody's personality and whether or not you connect with them. You must be a lot of fun at parties, I gotta say. <laughs> You're so interesting. All right, <laughs> final question for you, Derek Rossi, and it's 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 a biggie. Will we ever be free of COVID-19? Um, well, uh, so you're asking the question, will the virus become endemic like the influenza virus that's just here on a yearly basis? It changes shape every year so that it gets 
past the immune response that we developed from either last year being uh, immunized or uh, being infected. And I think most uh, epidemiologists believe now that COVID will become uh, endemic. It will be the best for uh, the foreseeable future, just because it's given such opportunity to evolve, uh, meaning that, you know, the, the, the more millions of people uh, are infected, the more trillions of replications uh, it can go through as it reproduces itself, offering the opportunity for advantageous mutations to arise. So uh, I think COVID's, let's say SARS-CoV-2, because COVID is the disease that comes from the virus. So SARS-CoV-2 and the variants thereof, I think, will become endemic and will be with us for a while. COVID-19, the disease, I think, will largely be taken care of with uh, not only vaccination, when finally the vaccine hesitant to get around to taking vaccines, which which is happening now, you know, because really you'd have to be a knucklehead, quite frankly, not to recognize that, you know, the people in hospitals right now and the people that are dying are the unvaccinated. Of course, you know, not I'm talking about the West where vaccines are, are available and they're free in the U.S., uh, there's still the rest of the the planet. You know, a, you know, a large percent uh, percent of the underdeveloped world hasn't been vaccinated to a large degree at all. Sometimes two, three percent of the population. So, plenty of opportunity for this virus to continue to evolve, uh, creating the likelihood of uh, it becoming endemic. Though the disease, COVID-19, not just vaccines are doing a good job of taking care of that, but other, other therapeutics that are constantly being, uh, you know, looked at for, for um, keeping people out of hospitals, keeping them off ventilators and keeping them alive. That will continue to progress. Derek Rossi, co-founder of Moderna and so much more. Thank you for joining us on the feed. Oh, it was my pleasure. When we come back, the 2021 Access Expo at Variety Village and wanted skilled digital talent. Follow us on Twitter at 1059 The Region. Ann Romer and more of the feed after the break. This is 1059 The Region. Welcome back to the feed. I'm Ann Romer. The pandemic accelerated the move to digital, but finding and keeping employees is now job one. Tina Cortez with KPMG. The pandemic forced many Canadian businesses to adopt a digital-first mindset to survive. Now most of those organizations are struggling to find tech-skilled workers. With a breakdown of a new business outlook poll is Mary Jo Fetty, National Enterprise Leader for KPMG in Canada. Mary Jo, welcome to the feed. Thank you, Tina. So let's get right into this poll. According to the details, finding and keeping employees with digital skills is growing increasingly difficult for companies. Why is that? Primarily, it's because of the movement to an innovation economy. Industries are moving uh, to, for example, financial services is moving to fintech, ag services moving to ag tech, medical and healthcare moving to med tech. The shift in industries as they move is dictating skill sets for innovation and digitization primarily around 
cyber, information technology, and data and analytics. We've heard of skilled shortages for years in our economy. Now we're hearing about digital and innovation skills shortages, and it's really predicated on this shift of industries. And so how are employers addressing these issues? Great question. The, the good news is they are aware and they are addressing them. Uh, there's a couple of things. Number one, about 69% of businesses polled suggested that they are looking to hire more staff. About 89% said that they are going to invest in developing their existing skills workforces. And about 52% said to the extent they can't find the skills in Canada, they would look internationally. And what about the post-secondary uh, institutions? Are they um, encouraging this type of training and instruction in their places of learning? Tina, that's a great question. And yes, I would suggest that universities and colleges and our post-secondary institutions are looking at what they can do to help prepare their students for a digital and innovation society and workplace. In addition, what you're seeing, Tina, is businesses partnering with these post-secondary institutions to co-develop training programs. It's not good enough for businesses to tell workers, well, go back to school and, and get the skills that you need. Businesses need to step up and help co-develop with those post-secondary institutions what that training looks like. Now, what about, you know, it seems like there, there seems to be a need to have a combination of the skills and the technology required. Is that right? Yes, that is, that, that, that is, that is correct. So technology skills, it's not just about more programmers. It is about also developing skills around cyber and information technology and data and analytics capabilities. And in addition, in addition to these skills, there are also human skills of the future that are going to be required. Critical thinking, coordination, social perceptiveness, active listening, complex problem solving. So a combination beyond these technology skills will be these human skills of the future. So how do you combine the two? Great question. And I think the employees out in the workforce looking, those that are able to combine those skills through what I would call lifelong learning, they are going to be the winners in the employment labor market. In addition, the how is going to involve micro-credentializing, becoming really good at one thing and becoming a guru, becoming a subject matter expert. So you're seeing these micro-credentializing programs coming up. KPMG has developed with Google Canada a micro-credentializing program that in six months you can really become a subject matter expert in one thing. And then it will be 
a situation of lifelong learning, so micro-credentializing in one skill, perfecting that, and then micro-credentializing in another and another and another, which will lead to lifelong learning. You're quoted as saying that while having the right technology is important, it's only effective if your team possesses the skills to leverage it. What does that mean? That gets into some of these lifelong uh, learning skills around um, human skills and the ability to critically think and complex problem solve uh, and being having social perceptiveness, so your emotional intelligence uh, as well, your, your IQ and your EQ combination. And Mary Jo, can I ask you, if companies cannot adapt or they can't find those skilled employees, are their days numbered? Yes. I would say I would say that their days that, that their days are numbered. One of the things that uh, surprised me about the poll was that fifty one percent of businesses said they recognize the need for these skills, but they can't afford to invest in developing them. That concerned me because seventy percent of them report skill shortages yet. Uh, 51% of the companies polled said they can't afford to invest, yet the number one impediment to growth is human capital and the development of human capital. So I would say, how can you afford not to invest? Uh, the, the, the companies that will be able to figure this out and invest and cultivate and harvest these skills, they're going to be the winners in the labor arbitrage game. So what do you want to say to those businesses out there, especially those small ones, as they head into the fall, as we're in the midst of this fourth wave, as the province has introduced the vaccine certificate? What do you want to say to those businesses? First of all, I want to say to those businesses, they're the bloodline and the lifeline of the Canadian economy, and they will continue to be. Secondly, I would say to them, the build it, buy it, or partner. Invest in building, buying, or co-developing these training programs to help develop and harvest the skills of your employees. Look to retrain and upskill your employees. Employees are going to be loyal to companies that will invest in them. And through reskilling and upskilling, and investing in micro-credentializing programs and looking to partner with companies and post-secondary institutions that will help you do that, uh, you are going to be successful and, as I said, be the winner in the labor arbitrage game. Mary Jo, thank you for your expertise. Mary Jo Fetty is National (laughs) Enterprise Leader for KPMG in Canada. Thanks for your time. Thank you, Tina. The 2021 Access Expo, hosted by Variety, the children's charity, to be held at the world-renowned Variety Village in Scarborough, September 17th and 18th, will showcase the latest in accessible equipment and devices, programs, services, and feature an all-important education and career fair. Accessibility champions like former Lieutenant Governor David Onley applaud this single-location event where people with disabilities can access a wide range of assistive devices and services, and 
and it is an in-person gathering as we navigate our way out of this pandemic. Former Toronto City Councillor, now proud President and CEO of Variety, the children's charity, Karen Stins, joins us with more on the 2021 Access Expo. Welcome to the feed, Karen. Thank you so much for having me. It's just a thrill to be here. And it's such a thrill to hear about this expo and the fact that we are now seeing it as one of the first events uh, which entails in-person. It makes such a big difference, doesn't it? It really does because this community has been, uh, again, very isolated, even more so than uh, maybe we realize because, again, it's hard for people with disability to get around in the best of times, and the pandemic really had an impact um, on the community. So we're thrilled to be able to offer this Access Expo in person in a safe environment where vaccines will be mandatory to um, enter and be part of the exhibition and we will also have rapid testing here. So I'm looking forward to welcoming, welcoming the community back into Variety Village and to the Access Expo. I love this from the website. There's something for hashtag everybody. What does that mean, Karen? Everybody. Mm-hmm. Exactly. <laughs> it <just means> we- <laughs> are there to serve the community at large. And we want to make sure that everybody, no matter what their level of ability is, feels comfortable to come to the Access Expo and we guarantee they will find something that will work for them. So we want to make sure that it's inclusive, that the widest community possible knows about it so that they can come and attend and they can find things, either products or services or, again, educational opportunities or career opportunities that maybe they didn't even think were possible. This is a place where we want to bring everything together and make it convenient and easy for the community to come. And fun. I also noticed on the website, here's a quote, there'll be an opportunity for networking in the beer tent, Karen. Absolutely. You can't have an exhibition without the beer tent. <laughs> so we, had our, uh, we did make an accessible bar. Uh, at our last Access Expo, and it was a, it was a true hit. And so this year we're going to do the same and, again, invite the community after they see what's available to come, uh, enjoy a beer, enjoy some camaraderie, and uh, to network in ways that, you know, haven't really been possible over the last 18 months. Can you expand on some of what will be on display at the Expo? For instance, ability-enhancing products and services. Can you expand on that? Most definitely. The products that we have, the vendors rather, that are coming to the Access Expo will showcase their products and services, and it will be arranged from um, adjustments to cars, to vehicles, uh, to telecommunication equipment, uh, to different types of um, equipment, either in home or office, to help improve mobility for individuals. Uh, we also have new technology around wheelchairs and, uh, again, accessible um, technology for, you know, just everyday living that helps improve the lives for people with a disability so that it, uh, they can actually be able to achieve all that they're capable of. There's also the chance to play adaptive sports in the sports zone. So what would those sports be? We are so excited uh, to welcome the community to participate in our adaptive sports in the sport zone. We have uh, partnered with Parasport Ontario and we're offering a range of adapted sports and parasports, uh, including uh, Volt Hockey, which is uh, right now uh, being launched at Variety Village. We'll have um, sitting volleyball, we'll have wheelchair basketball, we'll have all kinds of opportunities for people to come and see what sports are available to play. We'll have triad opportunities and we'll also have information available to families with kids around how they can get their kids involved in sporting opportunities that, that work for them. Another important aspect of this expo, job fairs. That is, you know, the the rate of unemployment among people with disabilities is very high and it's very uh, concerning. How will the job fairs help? 
Well, we want to make information, have information be available. And our jobs here, are, we're, we're looking to a two-prong approach. One is to have the information available where opportunities are. One is to actually help coach individuals with a disability on resume writing, on interview skills, on how they can make the best presentation when an opportunity does become available. Uh, again, it's, it's been a crazy world the last 18 months, and interviewing on Zoom and interviewing in person are very different experiences. And so what we want to be able to do is to offer a whole range of services to people that are looking for employment to help them, as they say, find opportunities and also to equip them with the best tools that we can help them with to make them successful when they find that job they want. Talk to us about opening night, the awards, and who is Unstoppable Tracy? <laughs> Unstoppable Tracy is a force to be reckoned with, I'll tell you. I first met Tracy Schmidt uh, when I first started at Variety Village and Variety the Children's Charity about six years ago, and she is a dynamo. She has uh, gone on to do incredible things. Uh, she has um, limited mobility because she, has, she was born with um, no, no legs and, and one arm only, and yet she's been a Paralympian. She's sailed. She's climbed. She's done everything that you can think of. And she's now launched on her uh, world tour of speaking and, and um, uh, trying to be a motivational speaker. And she truly is motivational when you, when you listen to her speak and you see what she's accomplished. She's just a real force, as I say. So we were thrilled to be able to give her the Lifetime Achievement Award for accessibility. And all the barriers that she's broken down just through being her is just really quite remarkable. So she's going to be our key speaker that night and accepting that award. And leading by example, you have a fireside chat the first evening as well. Tell us about that. Well, we wanted to create a bit of an intimate environment. And so we have a fireside chat with some, you know, key Paralympians and some other sporting, uh, uh, you know, professionals in sport that have conquered their own challenges. And the theme of the night really is resilience. And how do you build resilience in when it seems that there's just these incredible barriers? And, you know, all of us actually, no matter what our level of ability, have to deal with that. And, you know, when you feel like you can't accomplish something or the odds are stacked against you or you can't actually um, see how you can accomplish that goal, the ability to be resilient and stay focused is really what separates people who can achieve versus those who just wish to dream. And so we wanted to create that opportunity to bring people together to hear about resilience and accomplishment because, you know, again, we've come through the last 18 months and it's been so hard for so many, but, uh, and we've all needed our own resilience to get through it. And, you know, the days ahead are going to be brighter, and we want to just create that opportunity and that dialogue for people to realize that there is light, um, and we will, be go- we will be collectively getting to a better place, and opportunities will be opening up, and the Access Expo is a chance for people to really feel that and then prepare for and see what's available for individuals so that they can take those next steps. Karen, who do you hope will be attending the two-day event? Well, it's a free event, uh, so we are uh, inviting the broadest community. We do ask that people bring tickets just so that we can track who's coming in the door and then they can register at the Access Expo site for their ticket. But we want parents of children with disability, we want individuals with a disability, we want employers to come to see what accessible equipment is available for people either working from home or in the office. So we want you know, everybody and anyone to come and see what's available because the reality is 
we either will have mobility challenges at one point in our life or we know somebody that has mobility challenges or we have someone in our family that has a disability. So these products and services are really for everybody. So we wanted to make it as wide and as broad as possible, and uh, that's why the tickets are free. It's a two-day event um, on the weekend of the uh, 17th. Uh, the Friday 17th and the 18th, and uh, we're looking forward to having a great show. Karen Stintz, uh, you were a politician for many years. You're now the president and CEO of Variety, the children's charity. How has this job changed your view of life? Uh, well, I can say politics is an interesting sort of life, uh, one that I really enjoyed but uh, don't miss, to be candid. And uh, to be part of an organization that has such an incredible mission, uh, which is breaking down barriers for kids with a disability so that they can achieve, achieve their dreams, ha- has really been inspirational. And being able to work alongside an incredibly dedicated team to help kids and families and communities has really been, for me, the highlight of my career. And I can say that with all honesty, that I don't think I've ever had a better job. Hmm. The 2021 Access Expo, Friday, September 17th, Saturday, September 18th. Karen Stintz, where can people go for more information? They can go to our website, which is uh, www.accessexpo.com. They can also come to Variety Village to our website. We have information there for them. And uh, we are posted on all of the event boards around town. So there's lots of ways to get information. And uh, we look forward to seeing uh, everybody in person. Such a pleasure to interview you wearing a different hat this time. Thank you, Karen Stance, (laughs) for joining us on the feed. Thanks. (laughs) Thanks so much. Take care. Next on the feed, a York Region group designed to support men and their families. Jim Lang with the details. Well, everyone, we need to know more about something called the Canadian Centre for Men and Families in York Region. They're opening up their first office September 20th at 350 Highway 7, Unit PH4, and they're doing great work in the community. Speaking with Bajan Rafi, the Executive Director of the Canadian Centre for Men and Families in York Region. Now, Bajan, this is what's so important to me is is talking about mental health for men and some of the numbers for the rates of suicide for adult men in Canada every time i see it i i mean i can't believe it bajan why are they so high um you know uh yeah the uh, the suicide rate uh, for men in Canada is about three times that of uh, women. Uh, interesting, and uh, this is a statistic that really blew me away, is that if men go through divorce, that rate becomes eight times that of women. Hmm. And, uh, and for boys, it's actually twice that of the girls. So it's very, very high. There are really a number of reasons. Uh, one reason could be that we are... Uh, we are measuring men's values by their achievements and successes, and, and perhaps this puts a great uh, deal of pressure on them. So if they fail, uh, they're more likely to lose their self-worth. Uh, for women, I think there are more options to be seen as successful in our society. I think another reason could be that uh, we tend to judge men by difficult situations they're able to handle on their own, and I think that becomes a barrier in self, uh, in, in help seeking. And uh, uh, generally, men approach um, uh, uh, sort of achieving goals uh, uh, by sort of more planning, and we become more uh, sort of more determined to see them through. 
And unfortunately, this is exactly the same way they approach suicide. Hmm. So uh, women actually attempt suicide in a higher rate than men, but more men uh, 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 sort of succeed in it and die from it. Um, and, and, of course, there are more resources for women to turn to if they need help, and I believe that makes a big difference. No, but John, I've, I've had some friends that have had some tough times, went to get help and talked to me after I said, why didn't I do it sooner? So why is there still a stigma for men in 2021 to ask for help? Um, you know, uh, it, it was always uh, sort of a, a, a stigma for women as well in the past. Um, uh, and I think uh, there was, you know, we learned to, uh, uh, to, to deal with that. Um, uh, I think um, uh, just to put, you know, uh, we're not talking openly about it. Uh, perhaps maybe media are not comfortable covering it. Uh, it's, it might be that, you know, the journals feel covering domestic abuse in men uh, uh, takes away focus on, on female uh, uh, victims as well. Uh, and uh, uh, I think as a society as a whole, we have difficulty reconciling that, you know, men can have problems as well. If you missed any part of our show, go to 1059theregion.com or wherever you get your favorite podcasts, including Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music, and Audible. I'm Ann Romer. Thank you for listening.